Good morning. Um, so glad that you guys are here in worship with us this morning. I'm Nathan, one of the pastors here at St. John's. Uh, have the privilege of uh, starting off this series. Uh, Pastor Mike looked at me and said, you know, Nathan, could, could you maybe do that? I'm doing Ash Wednesday, so I have the privilege. Here, Nathan, take this one. Take betrayed. Betrayed, denied, mocked, murdered, buried, and yet we're forgiven. Betrayal. Uh, betrayal is perhaps one of the most difficult things for us to go through as people. I don't know about you, but I can remember some of those moments. I can still see myself sitting in the hallway right outside the training room, leaned up against the wall, arms over my knees. When I hear words uttered by someone that I trusted, words uttered that I'd told them in confidence, Words that were only meant for their ears, and here they were blasted out for anyone within earshot to hear. Maybe you can think of one of those moments. One of those moments where where someone in your life, someone that you trusted, someone that you depended on, someone that you thought would be there for you, betrayed you. (laughs) In the name that flashed into my mind in that moment was Judas. Betrayal is synonymous with Judas and for good reason. Let's uh, read those words right now uh, from Mark uh, chapter 14 that got him such a label. Beginning at verse 39, once more he went away, prayed the same thing. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, for here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. It is from this incident that the phrase kiss of death became part of the English vocabulary. A kiss of death means to have intimacy with something. And, And for Judas, that intimacy wasn't with Jesus because the kiss of Jesus always brings life. But but Judas was intimate with swords and with clubs and with money. That was the thing that he was most intimate with in his life, the desire for power. And so I guess the first question that we have to wrestle with, is there anything that we are intimate with in our lives that can cause this type of betrayal to spring out of our hearts and out of our mouths? Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's excitement and thrill or alcohol. 
And if that was all there was to betrayal, most of us could be done at this point and say, okay, there isn't anything like that in my life, not, not right now, not that's that big, that, that will cause me to betray the people that I'm closest to, that I love, that I care about, and then we could be done. But I think there's more to betrayal. More to betrayal because the question that I ask after reading through this text over and over again is Judas the only one that betrayed Jesus? Of course, he gets the, the moniker of being the betrayer, but was there more? Were there more people that were there that betrayed Jesus, that, that let him down, that, that failed him? Three times Jesus said to his disciples, you get a little more in-depth than some of the other Gospels. That three times Jesus leads his disciples and he, he gives them the impression that this is the hardest part of his life that he's coming into now. And he says to them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Three times Jesus comes back to them and each time they're not there for him. They're sleeping. They've, they've failed him. They've let him down. You see, the first definition of, of betrayal is to expose, to give away secret information to an enemy. But the other definition of betray is to be disloyal too. And as I thought about this, as I, I wrestled with this, I think that this, this other definition of sometimes, of betrayal, can sometimes be more pernicious, more destructive in, in our lives as followers of Jesus, in our, our lives with our family, in our lives with our kids. Maybe you can remember a time. I know I can. As I actually was at Sim. I don't know if you went through this or not, Mike, but when I was at Sim. It's one of those places I think whenever, whenever God's doing something great, Satan wants to undermine it. Satan wants to, to subvert it. Satan wants to interrupt it. Satan wants to, to break it up. And so I found myself in a hard place. And it wasn't a place that nobody else knew what was going on. My classmates knew what was going on in my life. And... You know, I thought, you know, when this is all going on, somebody would reach out and see when I stopped going to class, when I stopped showing up in the cafeteria, when I stopped showing up at intramural games like I was there. I thought someone would have been there. Maybe you've been there as well. Stepped into a hard moment in your life and you're expecting your friends, those people that you've walked alongside of, to reach out to you, to be there for you. You see, that's the kind of place that Jesus is in here. He's in the hardest place, and he's looking to those men that have walked with him, that have been closest to him for the past three years, to be there for him. And they're not. John Gottman uh, did a study on marriage. He's a, a famous marriage researcher. And um, he studied couples, newlywed couples, couples that had been together for a while, and he invited them to come to what was called the marriage lab. And they weren't filmed at night, but every moment of their waking time together, except for a time when they were able to go take a walk, was filmed. And he and his grad students watched them. 
watch them to find out what's going on, what's happening in couples that, that can tell us about their life together, what will predict the, the sturdiness of their marriage, the, the ability of them to bind together rather than be torn apart. And based on his research, John was able to determine the couples that would eventually get divorced with about a 90% accuracy. And so what he discovered, it was believed at that time that what leads to a really good marriage, to a great marriage, is deep and intimate conversations. But that's not what he found at all. He found that all of our interactions as people can be boiled down to basically three things. Anytime there's an interaction person to person, we can do one of three things. We can turn towards, which is, you know, like you're doing right now, paying attention. I appreciate it. Thank you. Or you can turn against. Turning against would be to attack someone, to, to say what they're thinking is stupid, to, to belittle them. And of course, there's varying degrees of, of both of those. And then the final option is to turn away. Turn away simply being defined as indifference, to ignore. Of those three possible things that any one of us can do in an interaction with another human being, what do you think is the most destructive to relationships, as was found by, by John and his researchers? Which one was the most predictive of a couple getting divorced? The third one. Ignoring. Found that that was the most destructive because it ends the conversation. There, there's no opportunity for restitution. There's no opportunity for further communication. Uh, when someone turns against you, it invites kind of a response and there's able for it eventually to come to resolution. But when there's indifference, when there's ignoring, the conversation stops. And as I look at the disciples and think about their reaction, to think about Judas directly betraying Jesus, giving away insider information by giving him up to his enemies, I think about how hard and how painful that must have been with Jesus knowing the whole time that Judas, this man that he invited to be a disciple, that had walked with him for three years, would turn on him like that. But in another way, I think that those people that Jesus depended on, those people that he expected to be there for him, I think to another degree, that's just as hurtful and painful. You see, in life, we as, as people are called to live with other people. Uh, to love other people. God has put other people in life for, for our joy, for our benefit. But the one thing that is true about people is that they will always surprise us, delight us, disappoint us, overwhelm us, and confuse us. Now, people would be easy to love if they weren't so peopley. They weren't so unpredictable and emotional and varying creatures affected by everything that's going on in their lives. And so what that means is, is that 
the people in our lives will be the greatest source of our joy, but probably also the greatest source of our suffering. And so when we come into that suffering, we, we have a few options, a few things that we can do in suffering. And the common American way to deal with suffering is to change our circumstances, right? If this isn't working, I'm going to go find something else. And maybe you know somebody that's chronically like this. I met a, a couple uh, back when I was uh, somewhere else, and they had moved there from somewhere else because they thought life would be better here and not in that other set of circumstances. A couple years later, all of a sudden, the circumstances that were in this other place that they were living all of a sudden were there as well. And then they moved somewhere else to find another set of circumstances. We do that as people sometimes with work, with relationships, with any number of things. Uh, the other way to deal with suffering is to detach, to, 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 to be stoic about it, to not let it bother us, not let us get to us, to be that, that stoic that's kind of that German trait. That's what we see of uh, Socrates as he's drinking hemlock, passionately detached to what's going on because it's not that big of a deal. There's those options, but then there's a third option. And I think the third option, being that it's the option that Jesus takes, is the options that we as Jesus' followers are to take as well. Jesus remains passionately connected and committed. You see Jesus' passionate connection with his Father as he's praying to his Father, as he's talking to his Father, as he's saying, this is what's in my heart. I don't want to do this. And yet at the same time, he's remaining passionately committed to his mission, to us. He takes the path of love, remaining passionately committed to the people that God has given to love, the people that God has given him to say, no matter what's going on, in spite of Judas, in spite of all of his disciples failing him and falling short. And so if you're to take anything away from, from today, I want you to take away this. When, when suffering comes into your life, so you have some options. You have the option to detach. You have the option to change your circumstance. And sometimes that is necessary. If you have a medical issue, you need to treat it aggressively, then you need to treat it aggressively. If you have a relationship that is absolutely and completely destructive, maybe you need to get out of it. But maybe God's also challenging you to lean into it, to pray, and to discern with other people in Jesus what the right decision is. And then the other option is to remain passionately committed and connected. I love this quote. I heard this uh, on a podcast last, last week. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, and I think I'm saying that right, uh, in his famous poem, If, wrote these words, and these words are written on the way out to center court at Wimbledon. Anybody else tennis fans? Yeah, me neither. It's okay. <laughs> Just kidding. If you like tennis, that's great. Um, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. I think that's true in tennis as it is in life. 
in relationships, we're going to have triumph and disaster. In life, we're going to have triumph and disaster. And, and what Kipling was saying is what matters not is whether you win or not, but your passionate connection to the thing that you are passionate about, in that case, tennis. But in the case of our lives, one another, in our lives, we're going to find triumph and disaster. You see it in, in Jesus' life, and he is treating them just the same. In spite of his circumstances, in spite of what's going on, he is remaining passionately committed. So how do we do this in our lives? When I think of remaining passionately committed, I think of nothing else before Paul's famous words on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There Paul says a whole bunch about love, but he only says that love is two things. He tells us a bunch of things that it does. He tells a bunch of things that it's not. He tells us what it is like, but there's only two things that he says love is like. And to be a loving person is to remain passionately committed to those people that God has placed in our life, to remain connected to them, to love them is to do that. And what does Paul tell us love is? Love is patient. Love is kind. In other words, love sits with, and love isn't a jerk. That's what we're called to do as God's people. And sometimes you go, oh, i got to tell them the truth. No, you're being a jerk. Just be patient. Let them tell you what's going on. Sit with them and be kind. That's what we're called to as God's people. In spite of what is going on in our lives. And the rest of this text just amazes me. You see, when Paul was writing those words in 1 Corinthians, Paul was personifying love. He was thinking of a person. And that person is the person before us now. From verse 46. The men seized Jesus and arrested them. One of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. When Paul wrote those words in 1 Corinthians, he was thinking of Jesus. Jesus, who is facing the worst of life and yet remains passionately committed to us, to his people. His love never fails no matter the circumstance. I want to wrap up with these words from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. These words are some of those words that I think sometimes we, we read wrong. 
Sometimes we read it as law, as about what we do. But as I read these words and I thought about these words, I heard something different. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I think that's one of the things that we read wrong. We read it as, as perfection. We read it as a set of standards. But as I hear the witnesses and I hear the name Jesus, I think about what these witnesses would attest to about Jesus. They don't see him as a set of standards, as a set of things to do. Rather, it's pointing to a person. A person who is undyingly, unfailingly committed to you and to me. No matter the betrayal, no matter what happens, he is committed. A person. That's what we are challenged and called to be, a person to the people in our lives as we focus on a person who thought about all that he was facing and still thought of you, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.